Good evening. Tonight's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 19, and we're reading from 1 to verse 22. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man, <clears throat> then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia, after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Evening, everyone. My name's Mark. Welcome to church, especially if it's your first time. Really pleased that you're here with us. We're getting towards the tail end of the book of Acts that we've been journeying through for a couple of years. Uh, tonight, Ephesians, uh, sorry, the town city of Ephesians. Acts chapter 19 is where we're going. Uh, let's pray for God's help, and then we'll have a think together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, thank you that as you speak through your word, that it accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it, and it never returns to you void. And so, Lord, please accomplish your purposes tonight in us as we sit under your word. Uh, please inform us, correct us, challenge us, shape us. And encourage us as well as uh, we consider the Lord Jesus and what he means for us. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Uh, you may know <clears throat> that uh, 40Ks up the road is Australia's only nuclear reactor, Lucas Heights. It's a 20 megawatt reactor that's used uh, exclusively for medical research. And uh, the facility itself has been there since 1956, but the, the current reactor that's there is called an Opal reactor, and that was actually built, rebuilt, in the early 2000s. And if you lived in Sydney at, at that time when the Howard government 
announced that they were going to be sort of building this new reactor in Lucas Heights, you'd remember that there was quite a lot of controversy around that topic. Uh, the, the, the city was quite divided over whether they wanted this thing or not. Uh, some people were in favour of the reactor being kind of built there, rebuilt there. Uh, most of those people, it must be said, were the people who didn't live in Lucas Heights. They were the ones who were most in favour of it. Uh, for instance, the, um, the health minister at the time, a guy called Peter McGoran, he said that it was a matter of life and death that the reactor was built because many Australians depended on the supply of radiopharmaceuticals from the reactor in order to, for nuclear medicine and that sort of thing. Other people looked at it and said, well, it's going to bring 800 jobs into the community, so it's a good thing, so that's fine, let's let it come. But there were, of course, lots of people who didn't like the idea of a nuclear reactor in their backyard. Uh, in December 2001, in the midst of its construction, 46 Greenpeace activists stormed the site, climbed up the towers, put up their banners, that sort of thing, blocked uh, drain pipes and all that sort of stuff to try and halt the construction. And along with this, there was community campaign after campaign after campaign to try and get this thing derailed and shut down, remove this dangerous nuclear facility out of Sydney suburbs. And it's kind of understandable, isn't it, that, that certain people felt that way? Because let's be honest, when a force as powerful as a nuclear reactor lands in your suburb, well, it gives you pause for thought, right? It, it kind of confronts you with its power and you've got to decide what to do about it. It forces a reaction out of you, a force as powerful as that. I'm saying all this because understand that the gospel, the message that we believe as Christians, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour, that message is God's power for salvation and it is more powerful, more confrontational, more disruptive than a nuclear reactor landing in your backyard. Now, no doubt you already know this if you're here tonight. You understand that the Christian gospel, the, the good news that we believe, is not popular. It's not easy. It confronts people. Uh, if you've ever shared the good news of Jesus with someone, you will know that that power does two things. Sometimes people are drawn to that power kind of magnetically. There's something appealing about it. But other times that power just repels people away, doesn't it? In Acts chapter 19, what we're looking at tonight is what happens when the tremendous power of the gospel descends upon the city of Ephesus and the effect that it has, both pushing and pulling people. In fact, what it shows us here in Acts 19 are three groups of people and the effect of the powerful gospel on those people. And so what we're going to do is we walk through the passage, just notice those three groups of people and see how the gospel pushes and pulls them. First, we're going to look at the nominal believers, and then we're going to look at those believers who've been compromised and then lastly, we're going to look at those who are materialistic and how the gospel interacts with them. That's where we're going. So let's start from verse 1 and take a look at the gospel and its interaction with nominal believers. And what we're going to see is that the gospel actually pulls, it, it invites the nominals. That's what the gospel does. So from verse 1, uh, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Then he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Which, let's be honest, that's a pretty rude question to kind of ask somebody straight off the bat. You're a Christian. Oh, did you get the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something's going on here, isn't it? Paul's radar is up. He can tell there's something kind of fishy about these people. That's not the sort of question you ask uh, people straight off the bat. But look at how they answer. Uh, they say, no, <laughs> we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So 
Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they reply. Well, Paul's, uh, he's tweaked at this point. He says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in languages and prophesied. Now, that, that is a strange little episode. There's some very peculiar things kind of going on here. Paul barely makes it into the city before he meets these disciples, says Luke, who believe, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, that's unusual. You don't find that elsewhere in the Bible. How does that work? It's not supposed to be able to find a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Does that exist? Is there such a thing as a Christian who believes but doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Well, let's try and make sense of this. The word that Luke uses here, the word disciple, is a word that's it's just a common word that means a follower of somebody. And look at who it is that these believers are followers of, verse 3. They're followers of John the Baptist, right? not of Jesus, of John the Baptist. Now, you remember John the Baptist. He was the guy at the start of the gospel stories of Jesus. He was kind of like the last of the Old Testament prophets He showed up on the scene to prepare God's people, basically saying the Messiah is coming. He'll be here soon, so get ready. And the way to be ready is to repent from your sin. And to show that you've repented, I will baptize you in the Jordan River, showing that you're ready to be cleansed by the Messiah who's coming after me. Now, that message that John preached, that's, that's a good message. That was right. It was right for the time. But now that message is incomplete, isn't it? It's not the full story. It's not enough because it's all about pointing forward to the one who was to come. John, in in essence, was saying, you know, all I can do is make you wet. Uh, I can just give you the symbol of the thing. But when the Messiah comes, he'll give you the real deal. He'll give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will give you new life and he will cleanse you from your sin once and for all. Now, it seems like these followers of John here, they believe that. They understood that the Messiah was coming. It's just that they didn't know that Jesus had actually come. They hadn't heard about him. They they hadn't come to understand his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave three days later. They hadn't heard the full gospel, just the beginning of the gospel, you see. Uh, Back in uh, 1974, uh, there was a Japanese soldier who emerged from a jungle in a remote island in the Philippines. Uh, He had remained at his post at the order of his commanding officer, managing to survive unnoticed behind what he thought was still enemy lines. Uh, He'd missed the news that the Second World War had ended, and now 29 years later, he was just finding out. Uh, There were actually news reports in 2005 as well that the same thing basically happened, but it was a pair of Japanese soldiers who had remained behind in a jungle on a Philippine island. This is now 60 years after the end of World War II, but they'd somehow just missed the news. Now, those reports were unconfirmed. It's unable to find out. I was unable to find out whether it uh, actually eventuated or not. But this guy, at least, he's kind of stuck in a time warp, isn't he? The same thing is going on with these disciples of John the Baptist, you see. They're stuck in this kind of spiritual time warp. They've been prepared, but they haven't heard, that the, heard the news that Christ has come. And so that is why you, you read there in verse 4 that Paul brings them up to speed on Jesus. He explains the powerful gospel to them more fully, and he essentially invites them to put their trust in Jesus, which they do. They, they trust him. They receive new life and then they are 
baptized into the name of Jesus. And that's when the Spirit is poured out on them. Just like it is, notice, at other points in the book of Acts that we've seen all the way through, key points where the pouring out of the Holy Spirit kind of proves that the message of the gospel being preached is the real deal. That's what's going on here. So this passage is not actually trying to show us that there are two types of Christians, one with the Spirit and one without. It's not about a a second baptism that you should expect later on in your Christian life. None of that. There's not two types of Christians. Paul's very clear about that. In fact, if you look at the letter that Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus, uh, some years later after Paul left the city, he writes the letter to the Ephesians, to these people. And look what he says to them about when they believe the gospel from Ephesians 1 verse 13. He says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him, in Jesus with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You see, to believe in Jesus is to be marked with the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit is to believe in Jesus. The reason that John's disciples here don't have the Holy Spirit is because they didn't yet believe in Jesus. And I think what this whole episode here, this strange thing, teaches us at the start of Acts 19 is just how central Jesus is to salvation. You know, these guys that Paul meets, they're kind of close to the kingdom, aren't they? They're they're open to it. They're positively inclined towards Christianity, but they're not saved yet because they haven't heard about and put their trust in the Savior. Now, obviously, we don't have these people in Wollongong in 2023. There are no disciples of John the Baptist, but I think that there is one group of people who are actually in a pretty similar boat to these guys, and that is the nominal Christians. The latest um, census data from a couple of years ago said that it was about 44% of people in Australia who identify themselves as Christians of some flavour. That number is actually higher in Wollongong. It's 48% in Wollongong. And yet we know that there's less than 5% of those people who are in churches on a Sunday, churches that teach the Bible. And so there is this huge gap there, right, between the people who say that they're Christians and any people who have any evidence in their life that they actually are. That gap is what we call the nominal Christians, Christians in name only, right? These nominal Christians, maybe they're people whose parents were Christians and they just sort of assumed it, you know, got transferred as a birthright to them. Maybe they're people who were taken along to Sunday school when they were young and they know something of the Bible. Maybe they went to a a Christian school and so they think, yeah, that's me, a Christian. Nominal Christians tend to believe in God, right, in some sort of broad general sense. They might even like some of the, you know, ethical, moral teachings that Jesus has, but they don't really understand the gospel. They don't know why Jesus died and rose again. And realize, friends, that this is every second person who lives in our city who fits into that category. One in two people you meet think that they are right with God and yet they don't know the Saviour. These are people who need to hear the gospel just as much as anybody else. And we have got the privilege of bringing to them the news about the God that they think they know. What a, what a mission field that is. One in two people for us to talk to. That's why when you are sharing the gospel or sharing your faith with somebody and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian too, you can't just take it on face value. You've got to ask follow-up questions. Well, what do you mean by that when you say you're a Christian? Tell me what it is that you actually believe about Jesus. Let's talk about him. Because there are heaps of people 
who think that they are believers, but they have not yet been saved by Jesus. Now, it could be that there are people in this room tonight who fit into that category. You understand something about Christianity. Maybe you had some of that upbringing, but it's, you know, it's an incomplete kind of an understanding. You're not sure why it is that Christians are always talking about Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave, you know. If that's you, then the gospel comes to you here as an invitation to turn to Jesus, to find the one that you think you know, to see in him that he is the Christ, God's promised king, the one who died to save you. Put your trust in him and you will receive the Holy Spirit and new life and forgiveness of your sins. That's you. I really would love to chat to you after the service about what that means for you. That's the first group that we meet here in Acts 19, the nominals. Uh, the second group that we meet from verse 8 are those who are compromised. And to them, the gospel doesn't come as an invitation, actually. The gospel comes as a rebuke. Now, after uh, Paul kind of has this first interaction with these disciples of John the Baptist, he sticks around in Ephesus and keeps preaching and ministering for two more years. Uh, first he's at the synagogue, then he's in a lecture hall, and God is doing amazing things through Paul. Extraordinary miracles is the way that Luke describes it in verse 11 and 12, which is kind of a strange way to describe it, isn't it? Extraordinary miracles. I mean, aren't miracles extraordinary just by definition? They are out of the ordinary, right? But it seems like what Luke's getting at here is that even these miracles, they are extra extraordinary. Paul's sweat rag is touching people and people are being healed. Demons are being cast out just by being in proximity to things that belong to the Apostle Paul. It's showing us just how powerful this gospel is that Paul's bringing into Ephesus. And it's no wonder, if that's the context, that there are people who want to try and get in on that action. And so we see what happens in verse 13. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this, right? They're using Jesus' name kind of like a lucky charm, trying to sort of perform tricks with it for their own renown, their own glory. And look at how it works out for them. Verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? I mean, put yourself in those guys' shoes. That's not the response you want to hear from a demon-possessed person at that point, is it? Verse 16, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. One demon-possessed man against seven sons of Sceva. There's something funny about this story, I think, but actually let's... Even though we might laugh, let's not miss the warning that's happening in these verses. There is a warning here for us. There's a warning here for anyone who would take the name of Jesus and use it for their own ends. And I do think that that's an attitude that we all share in some part, at least. Because on some level, we all want Christ, but we want him on our terms, you know, perhaps not as a charm to cast out demons, but still in other ways, we want Jesus for ourselves, for, for our purposes. We do kind of see Jesus from time to time like a genie in a bottle, you know. You just put him out of the way when you don't need him. But then when trouble comes along, get your prayer lamp, give it a little rub, wait for God to appear and hope that he says, your wish is my command. We have something of that attitude, don't we? There's a lot of that kind of Christianity around, I think. If I can be pointed, that is the danger of the prosperity gospel. 
That's the danger of the word of faith movement, if you know anything about that. These are people who are trying to take advantage of God's name for their own ends, to obtain wealth and prosperity. These are people who have no interest in coming to Jesus on his terms. They want what he can give them. And that is a dangerous game to play because God says that he will hold people to to account who use his name for their ends. There's a warning here. But I think in this story, actually the most amazing thing that happens is the impact that this event has on the city of Ephesus, particularly on the Christians. Because it turns out that the Christians in Ephesus, they had still been kind of holding on to some of their old pagan ways. Have a look what goes on in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. There's been a glimpse in Ephesus of the power of the gospel, and it's like a wake-up call to the Christians. These compromised Christians who've still been dabbling in the occult After being reminded of the power of the gospel, they have this renewed concern, you see, for the honour of the Lord Jesus. And so in the most public way possible, they come and they repent of their sorcery, their idolatry, they burn their magic scrolls, they confess their sins, they're transformed, you see. Because do understand that Christianity is not just about believing that Jesus is a saviour who can save you. It's about entering into a relationship with that saviour as your Lord and King, where you you serve and you worship and you honour him and no one else. You see, when, when we become followers of Jesus, we are choosing to let Jesus come into our lives and renovate us from the inside out, to let him rip up the carpet and repaint the walls, tear down those parts of our lives that belong to our old self. And, and we are, in effect, choosing to let Jesus decorate however he wants, to put things in our lives that he says is right and good and will lead to his glory and honour. That's what we've chosen if we've become followers of Jesus. So we must not, we cannot hold on to old parts of our lives which get in the way of our devotion to the Lord Jesus. So I have to ask you tonight, friends, whether the honour of the name of the Lord Jesus, is your highest priority in life. Is that what you desire more than anything else? If it is, then are are there things that you need to throw on the bonfire tonight? Things that belong to your old way of life that you need to confess and repent of? Things that you're holding on to that are competing with your devotion to Jesus? Maybe for some people here, it is dabbling in the occult, just like the Ephesians, you know, tarot cards, Ouija boards, horoscopes, fortune tellers, that sort of thing. Maybe for some people here, if you've become a Christian out of a different religion or even, you know, out of Catholicism, say, there may still be parts of that system that you've kind of held onto and incorporated into your devotion of Jesus, praying to Mary or praying to the saints, for instance. Understand, Jesus wants your undivided devotion 
And so you must repent of those things. Maybe those aren't the things that you've compromised your devotion to Jesus with. They're not your hidden sins. Maybe for you, it's the gods of our culture that you've continued to serve, of, of money and pleasure and sex. You know that discrete profile on the hookup app that you haven't deleted yet? You check every once in a while. You know the, the drugs that you keep at the back of that drawer where no one's going to find them? You know, the, the money that you put into the pokies each week, just knowing that nobody's going to call you up on it. If the honour of the Lord Jesus is your highest priority, then you cannot keep serving those gods which compete with him. So maybe today is the day that you let those things go, that you stop living in compromise. Why don't you do that tonight? Why don't you come and talk to God about those things and repent of them? Confess your sin to him. Get rid of those things in your life. Ask others to come and to help you to do that. Do whatever it takes to start to deal with those things because Jesus is the powerful Lord and King and he wants his followers to be undivided in their devotion to him. When the gospel comes to Corinth, to Ephesus rather, it rebukes the compromised. The third and final quickly group that we are going to see the gospel confront in this chapter is those people who are materialistic. Uh, and there were many of them in Ephesus because Ephesus at the time was this major metropolis. It was kind of a centre of trade and religion and politics. Uh, really the thing that the city was most well known for was for this massive temple in the city to the goddess Artemis, who was kind of the Greek fertility goddess of the time. Uh, her temple just kind of loomed over the city. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon in Rome. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and this massive religious business di district, if you like, in Ephesus, created massive business for craftsmen who were selling idols. Have a look from verse 23 with me. About that time arose a great disturbance about the way. That's just referring to Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. How dare he? What an outrageous thing to suggest. Uh, there is a danger, Demetrius goes on, there is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, what I love about this is that you start to get a glimpse here into the impact that the gospel is having in this city. The, the, the radically transformed lives of the Christians is starting to be noticed in the city of Ephesus. It's tangible. It, it's putting pressure on the economy, you see, because Christians are not buying idols anymore. They've let God completely reorient their lives, and so the idol makers are starting to lose business. I mean, friends, wouldn't that be a good thing to pray for our city, for us? that God would so transform us that our city sits up and takes notice. Uh, well, the crowd are angry about this, about the work that the gospel is doing in Ephesus. Now, But the thing I want you to notice here is that the crowd really are not interested 
in whether the message that's doing all this amazing stuff in the city, whether it's true at all. It's not their concern in the slightest. Uh, they pretend there in verse 27 that they've got spiritual concerns, that they want to honour the goddess Artemis, but actually it's abundantly clear that the thing that they are concerned about is their own profit, right? They are materialists who are just living for whatever they can get out of this life and this world. And instead of you know searching the scriptures to find out if this gospel Paul's preaching is true, which is what the, the Bereans did back in chapter 17, instead they search their balance sheets and they conclude, well, even if it's true, we don't, we don't want it here. It's bad for business. Get rid of it. They're determined to stamp out the gospel at this point. Do you know in the same way, this group of people, the materialists, they are well represented in our day and age as well, in, in our world. People who live for money and possessions and pleasure and the good life. And that group of people, they are quite happy for us to believe the gospel, for us even to preach the gospel. That's no problem as long as it doesn't impinge on what they want to get out of this world, whether that's profit or pleasure. But the moment that, that our faith actually interferes with either of those things, well, then suddenly they're dead against it. It's got to be stopped. And you can see that kind of attitude that materialists will not put up with profit and pleasure being diminished all throughout history, actually. If you go back and look at all the times in human history where revival has broken out, one of the consistent things that you see is that pubs close <laughs> because those people who had been given over to alcoholism are suddenly redeemed and their lives are turned around and the people who are selling alcohol start to make a lot less money. It happened in Melbourne in 1902 when there was a revival there. And invariably what happens in those situations is that the Christians are put under tremendous pressure to stop converting people, stop evangelizing because the bottom line is being affected. You see that kind of attitude, not, not just in sort of large-scale things like that, but in your interactions as well, day-to-day -day, with materialistic thinking people. Think of a classroom at school. Your teacher walks out of the classroom and says, just keep getting on with the work, the assessment, whilst I'm out of the room for a minute. And once they leave, a few people speak up and say, hey, what teacher's out of the room. Let's share our answers quick. You know, we'll make it easier for ourselves. And the Christian kids in the room say, no, we can't do that. That's cheating. Well, suddenly you've gotten in the way of their fun. <laughs> and the materialists aren't happy that you're stopping them getting out of this life what they want and you become hated. Or maybe, maybe you've been in a situation, you know, you go out with some, uh, some mates, some young adult friends, and someone decides it'd be a good idea to start, you know, kicking over letterboxes, harmless kind of fun, stuff like that. And the Christian objects, says, no, that's illegal. I'm not going to get involved in that. Well, you know, as long as the Christian goes along with it and doesn't make too much fuss, that's fine. But as soon as they, they object and they're starting to push back on the fun and the pleasure that others are getting in life, well, there's backlash. Or maybe you've been in a situation at work where your boss wants you to do cashies so that you don't have to put the money in the till and that they have to report on the income. And as a Christian, you refuse. Now profit is being threatened and the materialists won't like that one bit. Or maybe even on your workplace, you've been encouraged to participate in the Wear It Purple Day. And as a Christian, you politely refuse. Well, you better know that you're going to be hated for that because you're standing in the way of joy and pleasure, don't you know? Here's the thing, though. There's no escaping it. The gospel is a confrontation to the materialistic worldview. 
Because in the gospel, it declares that we have our highest allegiance to something that's out of this world, not to pleasure, not to profit, nothing like that, but to the Lord Jesus who is over this whole world. It confronts the materialistic worldview. And so when our devotion gets in the way of their profit or pleasure, we should expect opposition. We should expect that people are not going to like it. That's what we see time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Living for Jesus will ruffle people's feathers. And friends, we have to make peace with that. We have to come to accept the fact that our lifestyle, if we are devoted to Jesus, will make us unpopular and it will be offensive to some people. There's no escaping it. But I want to reassure you that that is nothing to worry about, truly. Nothing to worry about whatsoever. You know, at the, the end of this story, if you read through it during the week, you will know that this, this great riot that breaks out in the city of Ephesus, it is comically ineffective. <laughs> uh, all of the silversmiths and the tradies and whoever, they get together and they, they start trying to turn over the, the Christian, trying to chase them out of town, that sort of thing. And despite mustering all of the power of the whole city that they can get their hands on, all they can do for a couple of hours is just shout. It's literally, it's just hot air. That's all they come up with. And then they get told to go home and nothing changes. It's comically ineffective. But if you compare that, the power of this world, to the power of the gospel that you see in Acts chapter 19, it's worlds apart. The, the gospel lands in Ephesus and people are saved. Lives are transformed. The church is planted. People, in fact, all over Asia hear the word of the Lord and it grows in power. Do you understand, right, that this 20-megawatt nuclear reactor, it, it is no less powerful because of the placards and pickets in front and protests that people put in front of it. Do you understand that the gospel message isn't any less powerful because of the opposition that you will experience because of it? Friends, as, as we take this powerful gospel to our city, we shouldn't expect that everybody is going to like it, that everybody's going to welcome, welcome it with open arms. The gospel pulls and pushes. But we must be convinced, we must be convinced that the gospel will prevail at the end of the day because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So let's take it out confidently. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for this powerful gospel message that you've revealed to us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus as a powerful saviour, able to rescue even sinners like us and reconcile us with you. Thank you that you worked in power to raise your son from the grave and that in him we have new life, forgiveness of sins and freedom. Almighty God, we do confess to you tonight that too often we are compromised in our devotion to the Lord Jesus, that there are things that take us away that belong to our old lives. Lord, please transform us from the inside out so that we would be those new creations that you have made us to be in Christ. And Lord, help us to hold out this powerful gospel to our city, knowing that many will oppose us, but that many also are waiting to hear the good news of a saviour. We trust you that your gospel will prevail. And so please use us to make it known. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.